Good afternoon to everyone listening. My name is Eliana Svilik. Welcome to the 12th episode of my podcast, Capital Connections. On this podcast, we are going to explore the intersection between politics, economics, and everyday life. We are going to understand why the flow of money between countries and companies matters. This podcast is an educational initiative with the goal of educating my peers, high school students, on the global economic events that are so relevant to our lives, but schools often neglect to teach fully. Today, we are going to further develop the economic angle of the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine. This is the last installment in a four-part series about the global ramifications of Russia's invasion. In the first two installments, episodes 9 and 10, we covered the political and historical angles of the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. In the previous episode, we began our discussion of the economic angle to the Russia-Ukraine war. Please check out those episodes for a better understanding of the politics behind Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Before we meet our guests, here are some brief updates on the Russo-Ukrainian war. Ukraine and Russia will soon be entering the ninth month of a brutal conflict that began on February 24th, when Russia invaded eastern Ukraine. In many ways, this conflict began in February of 2014, when the Ukrainian Revolution of Dignity ended and authoritarian President Viktor Yanukovych was ousted. The Revolution of Dignity, also known as the Yermaidan, was the name given to three months of anti-corruption protests in Kyiv. The Revolution of Dignity showed the world, particularly President Putin of Russia, that Ukrainians were united by their determination to build a stable democracy free of corruption. Ultimately, the ousting of Yanukovych and the Yermaidan made Ukraine into an enemy of Russia, and Putin acted quickly. It was likely clear to him that he could no longer control Ukraine, and he would not tolerate an independent political entity on his southwestern border. On March 18, 2014, he annexed the Crimea and began a separatist war in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine soon after. In February of 2022, nearly six years later, Putin sent forces into eastern Ukraine, officially starting the ongoing war. The United Nations puts the number of civilian casualties at over 14,000 to date, though the actual number is likely far higher. Ukraine and the United States have both accused Russia of war crimes, and independent organizations are struggling to pinpoint exactly how many soldiers have been killed on both sides, but the number grows daily. Both countries have been engaged in a mass mobilization of military forces, and conscription is ongoing, particularly in Russia. Here to help us understand the economic component of the Russia-Ukraine war is Dr. Janusz Kluge the Senior Associate of the Eastern Europe and Eurasia Division at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, also known as the SWP. He is also a coordinator for the EU-Russia Experts Network on Foreign Policy, and he holds a PhD in economics from Wittenherdecke University. Dr. Kluge's research focuses on Russia's domestic policy, economic development, and sanctions. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, so naturally we could spend hours discussing the different facets of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but today we're just going to cover a few of the major themes. 
So to start, I want to ask you, what drew you to writing about and researching the Russian economy? It's a good question. It's a long story. Essentially, I actually had the first contact with Russia as a high school student. I, I went there for a student exchange back then. Uh, for about three weeks, I was living with the Russian family in the 90s. And after that, I didn't have a lot to do with Russia. In the following years, I studied economics. You know, I'm, I was interested in other things, also more in business economics. But then at, towards the end of my master's degree, I, I went back to Russia for half a year. And after that, I don't know, it just triggered, you know, an, an interest that has never left me ever since. So that's when I decided to do a PhD. And my PhD was also related to topics um, on the Russian economy. And now I've been at SWP for five years. So I started working in 2017. Yeah, I don't know if I should say something about SWP. I mean, it's, it's a government funded think tank in Berlin. And we do policy consulting for the government in the Bundestag. And we have, we, we basically cover all of the world uh, in different research groups. As you said, I'm working on Russia uh, in the Eastern Europe and Eurasia uh, research group. And yeah, my specialty is, um, as you also said, economic development, sort of the intersection of economic policy and, and foreign policy. That's very interesting. Thank you. So could you please provide an overview of the sanctions that the West and its allies have imposed on Russia in response to its invasion of Ukraine? Well, the sanctions is, I mean, there, there are thousands of different measures. More than 6,000 different measures have been imposed on, on Russia from many different countries. It's a, actually a pretty big coalition of countries that is sanctioning Russia, um, including some Asian economies like Japan and South Korea. And I like to categorize it in, in three big categories. The first one is financial sanctions. So basically disconnecting uh, the Russian banking system from the global banking system. And the second part is uh, technology sanctions. So making Western technologies unavailable for at least certain sectors of the Russian economy, especially the arms manufacturing, but also the energy industry. And the third big area of sanctions is sanctions on Russia's energy exports. So basically, Western countries not buying uh, Russian energy exports anymore, oil, gas, coal, and so on. So these are the three big areas, and they, they sort of work differently. And there are also many other measures that have been taken that you could also characterize as sanctions, like, for example, closing down the airspace, ending cooperation on institution level between, some, sometimes maybe it's even gone too far between universities, also excluding Russia from sports competitions. I mean, there's very a lot of, I mean, really a lot of measures that you could also characterize as sanctions, but I focus on the economic sanctions, and those are the three big components that I spoke of. Okay, thank you. So what is the goal of these sanctions? It's often a little unclear what the different measures are trying to achieve. Yeah, and it's an excellent question. It's a very good and important question. And often it's also not that clearly communicated what the goal is. We have several statements from the G7, you know, from the EU of what the sanctions are supposed to achieve. And that is making it costly for Russia to wage this war, making it harder to wage this war. But it is not really precise. and. We also have to consider that the effects of sanctions, are it's not that predictable. So we introduce all of these measures. Many of them are unprecedented, at least against such a big economy. And we cannot really know uh, in advance what the precise effects are going to be. This is why sanctions are constantly adjusted. And, and so we, we have to observe very carefully uh, what is happening in Russia at the moment. 
But in general, of course, the overarching goal is to end the war in Ukraine. And they, we have different foreign policy instruments to achieve that. We deliver arms to Ukraine, we give Ukraine uh, financial support, and sanctions are also part of it. And then you can think of different sort of transmission mechanisms. How could sanctions make it harder for Russia to wage war? They could deprive it of financial means to do that, by example, for example, driving the Russian uh, government budget into a deficit and making it harder to finance the war. And they could also hit the Russian uh, defense industry. So if Russia doesn't have the technology, for example, um, semiconductors and other advanced technologies that it needs to, to build its weapons, then at some point it will run out, out of modern high-precision uh, weapons. And this is also one of the goals of these sanctions. But it is always important to not expect too much. I would say that the realistic goal of these sanctions is to um, increase the price of this invasion for Vladimir Putin and the Russian regime. And this also has been achieved already. And everything that goes beyond it is really contingent on many factors which are out of our control, like dynamics within the Russian regime. Also, things that happen on the ground in Ukraine regarding the military situation. And so it's, it's difficult to predict, and we rather have to put modest goals for these sanctions. At the same time, they're an important component in the overall foreign policy reaction to the war in Ukraine. Right. So how well are the sanctions achieving the goal in the short term? Well, in the first days after the sanctions were imposed, there was actually some panic in Russia. There was actually some instability in the banking system. We had some initial bank runs, meaning that people were lining up in front of ATMs to, to get their cash out. And But, but the situation after a few days, I mean, the central bank managed to get the situation under control. So they implemented some very far-reaching measures, uh, capital control. So they uh, stopped uh, foreign exchange from leaving the country. They, they, they banned withdrawals of dollars and euros. And so with these measures, they managed to basically stabilize the banking system again. And after that, what we have been seeing now is a very uneven effect on different sectors of the Russian economy, some of which are actually not producing anything anymore at the moment. This is especially true for the for car manufacturing and others are much less affected. So, for example, um, we saw that that Russian oil exports are still pretty much where they were before the invasion and also some other sectors of the economy are not that affected, some, simply because they don't rely so much on Western parts and components, Western machinery, or Western companies, uh, you know, which, many of which have left the country. So it's, it's a very uneven effect, but what is already clear is that there will be, a, or there is already a severe economic crisis in Russia. Uh, the gross domestic product has uh, fallen by 6% already since February. And most experts believe that it will fall by 10% this year, which would be the deepest economic crisis uh, since Putin took office in, 2000, in the year 2000. So it is basically the biggest economic challenge for him. And yes, economically, definitely sanctions are working. The only, the only area where it's a bit more difficult is uh, the question of Russia's state finances, which uh, to a large degree rely on oil and oil exports are not... I mean, they, they, Russia has to sell its oil for price lower than world market prices for non-Russian oil. There's like a 30% discount that Russia has to give for, um, for countries, for companies to buy its oil. But still the volumes are very high, are still basically unchanged. And this means that the budget still has um, plenty of cash and is still able to finance the war 
at this point and is also able to compensate to cushion some of the sanctions effects. This means that we have an uneven result with you know, important sectors of the economy not working anymore, while at the same time the state is, um, is in rather okay shape. Although we have some you know, planned sanctions being enacted basically towards the end of the year and the beginning of next year, which is the EU oil embargo, which will hit a large chunk of Russia's oil exports. So we can expect that also Russia's state finances will probably deteriorate over the next two or three years, but it will take some time. I think this is a very important lesson that sanctions always take a lot of time to achieve their goal and um, really for the effect to filter through um, the Russian economy. Right. So according to Investopedia, as of February 28th, the United States, EU, UK and Canada have all agreed to levy economic sanctions against Russia by removing select Russian banks from the SWIFT messaging system. Japan has announced that it will do the same. So how has the exclusion of Russian banks from the SWIFT network impacted the Russian economy? The exclusion from SWIFT, which affects only certain Russian banks, but very large ones, is one of the sanctions measures targeting Russia's banking system. There also have been others. For example, the United States has uh, implemented uh, so-called full blocking sanctions against uh, several large Russian banks. And this basically already cuts them off from the US dollar financial system. And the EU has implemented similar measures so that for some banks, the, excluding them from the SWIFT payment system didn't really add so much to these already very harsh sanctions. So this, I mean, in SWIFT, SWIFT is a financial messaging system. So it, um, it is basically a communication system that allows to, well, basically to, to carry out transactions, which are later then uh, settled through other systems. And it makes doing business for Russian banks more complicated also with non-Western um, countries. So for example, there are of, of course also, I don't know, Indian companies or Chinese companies are using SWIFT. And if a bank is excluded from that, it also creates problems for the bank in communicating with banks in non-sanctioning countries. So it has a material effect, but I would not exaggerate it considering that there already were very severe sanctions in place and that it also only affects certain banks. And there are banks which have been spared, like for example, Gazprom Bank, which is needed for settling basically energy trade so the EU wanted to keep this possibility to import Russian gas and oil. And this is why Gazprom Bank, for example, is not sanctioned and is not excluded from SWIFT at this point. So this means that there are basically possibilities for, for Russian companies to open an account in a bank like Gazprom Bank and then you know, conduct their trade and their, 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 their financial operations to this bank. And it's not a watertight sanctions wall, so to say. There's a car route, which has been specifically put in place to pay for um, energy bills. And this takes away some of the effect. But overall, Russia's, I mean, Russia's banking system, also Russia's capital market is pretty much isolated from the most important capital markets of the world. And so, so these sanctions, including the SWIFT sanctions, but also the other blocking sanctions are having a very harsh effect. And they also affect companies who are still operating in Russia and it affects the decisions of companies to leave Russia because it makes it more complicated for a foreign company, for example, to, to operate within Russia. Right. That, that makes total sense. So 
In an interview with the New Zurich Times, you stated that Ukraine will become increasingly dependent on Western arms. Do you believe that the West is committed to providing the weapons and economic aid in the long term? Yeah, first of all, I think this is absolutely crucial. And I, I sure hope so that it will, that the West will continue doing this. There are some factors which you know, might create problems in the future. We don't know exactly, for example, what the result of the 24 election in the United States is going to be, if there's going to be some kind of surprise to the downside. There's also always the question how European societies are handling the current energy crisis and how much support there's going to be going forward, what is kind of support. But what makes me optimistic is that by the, the US government, also UK, also the EU, they are already taking a long-term long -term approach to this. So they're already thinking ahead of what Ukraine might need in the next years, because we have to be realistic, realistic that this war is probably going to continue for a very long time, because at least right now there is no possible scenario under current conditions how there could be some kind of peace deal. So it will be necessary for a long period of time to support Ukraine. And, and well, I think it is possible. I think that, that there will be enough political will, but it will, it will be an effort. And it's something also I work towards that, that we have, that we continue doing this and that we have the political will um, to continue doing this. Um, so, yeah, I'm optimistic, but yeah, we have to really <laughs> remain vigilant that our attention is not drifting away to other things that also might happen. Um, usually the attention span also of the public is very short and you already can see that the war is not number one issue anymore, at least in, for example, in, in, in Germany, where we have now the, the prospect of a gas crisis in the winter, this is, you know, occupying people's mind as well. Right. So at this point, I want to transition to examining the Russian response to Western sanctions. So speaking of gas, what is the Nordic Stream 1 Baltic Sea pipeline and what is its role in delivering gas from Russia to European countries? Sure. So the Nord Stream 1 is a pipeline that has been operating, I believe, for about 10 years. It is bringing about one third of the Russian gas to the EU. So its capacity is 55 billion cubic meters um, per year. And while um, other transit corridors, so Russian gas also is coming through pipelines through Ukraine and pipelines through Poland and Belarus, and also through pipelines through Turkey. So these are basically the corridors. Nord Stream 1 had, I mean, so far been the, the corridor which has been used the most and most reliably by Gazprom also because it is at least partially owned by Gazprom. So it, it makes sense for the company to use that pipeline. And also because Russia wanted to circumvent uh, the Ukrainian pipeline system and not pay transit fees to Ukraine anymore. So uh, this is, by the way, also why Nord Stream 2 got built. Another pipeline, which is uh, parallel to Nord Stream 1, has the same capacity, but it was never, well, it, it was never um, operational. And uh, it, it looks like it will not be, I mean, it was basically uh, excluded, I mean, it was already decided before the invasion at the day when Russia recognized these, well, self-proclaimed republics in the east of Ukraine at that day, already one day before the invasion, uh, Germany decided to, to not go ahead with Nord Stream 2. So this is basically off the table, although Russia now says, well, if you can bring it back, maybe we will deliver more gas, but it's clear that this is some sort of blackmail that the German government is I think not going to agree to. Nord Stream 1 
was basically functioning reliably until I believe it was, I think it was in the middle of June when suddenly the capacity, I mean, the, 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 the basically the, the load of gas that was transited through the pipeline dropped in, you know, in two consecutive days, it dropped um, down until about 40% of capacity. And uh, the reason that Gazprom gave for this was that they had some technical issues with the turbine, that the turbine was stuck in Canada due to sanctions and that they needed back. Um, but it was pretty soon clear that this is just a pretext and that Russia is trying to limit gas deliveries to the EU to drive up prices here, basically also to create division within the societies and, and creating the illusion that the sanctions are very costly on us. Although, as you rightly pointed out, this is a sanction imposed by Russia on us and it's not the cost of our sanctions. So it's a reaction. Um, it's basically the only real economic tool that Russia has, how it can hurt the EU. And while it is still using these pretexts to, to use it, it is now obvious to anyone looking at the situation that it is using this tool that it is actually deliberately delivering less than it could because there are also other pipelines that Russia could still use at this point but chooses not to so it could increase the volumes if it wanted to and because it's clear that this turbine is not cannot be the reason because Gazprom has other possibilities to replace this turbine because the turbine which is now coming from Canada um, um, to Russia I mean returning it, it shouldn't be needed at this point. So, I mean, overall, this is a pretty clear picture that Russia is reducing its deliveries. Right. So the EU Commission has proposed that member states cut down on their gas consumption by 15% from August to March, amid worries that Russia might cut off the gas supply, especially moving into the fall and winter months. So almost half of the 27 member states expressed concern over the proposal, and a few, including Spain and Portugal, have stated that imposing the same target on all countries is unfair. Western unity has been a crucial part of an effective opposition to Russia's invasion. So does the divided response to the Commission's proposal indicate a split in the EU? This is a tricky one. There are two things that we have to consider when, when looking at these reactions from other member countries. The first one is sort of uh, the history of the Euro crisis when some countries felt that Germany was behaving selfishly and, and you know, was basically lecturing other countries that they should be take better care of their state finances and, and was not, you know, willing to do a, a big bailout and so on. So, I mean, there is still some, I think, some resentment left after this period, which was also about 10 years ago. The second part of the of, of the history of that precedes this question is basically that Germany, I mean, it basically intentionally made itself reliant on Russia and it got a lot of criticism by other EU member states that it should not do that. And also Brussels, so the EU itself um, criticized Germany and said, you, you know, you, you shouldn't do this. This is too much reliance. And Germany was again you know, behaving pretty selfish and ignoring and dismissing this uh, criticism and fighting very hard also to get Nord Stream 2 approved. And, and basically, it was uh, against everybody, almost everybody's criticism. Germany created this problem for itself. And um, now this is, of course, understandable that other countries, you know, do not really want to pay the price. It is 
I mean, it's problematic enough that that this decision of Germany in the past to make itself so dependent on Russian gas is, has an impact on the whole of the EU. I mean, it is a problem for the whole EU that Germany is so dependent on Russian gas. And it, yeah, I mean, Germany, I think, has to do more to secure also the, the sort of the cooperation and loyalty of other countries at this point. It will not be free. But at the same time, I'm not I'm not that worried that the coalition or that the EU will the break apart over this. I, I, I think this is also some sort of bargaining process which is going on in the EU all the time. And that in the end, there will be a solution because the other European countries also know that if Germany's economy, you know, would severely contract due to the lack of gas, that it would also affect their economies because all the European economies are extremely, extremely closely intertwined. So, I mean, it's not, you cannot look at one in isolation. And that's why I'm optimistic that in the end, this issue will be uh, resolved. Okay, thank you. So what other sources of gas are there for member states to turn to, if not Russian gas? Well, the EU um, overall has basically um, three big sources um, of gas. The first one is, of course, Russia. Uh, the second one is Norway. And um, the third one is LNG. So these are basically the most important source. There are also some pipelines to smaller suppliers like um, Azerbaijan or Algeria. But you know the most important are Norway and LNG, so liquefied natural gas that comes via ship. And depending on what country you look at, some have very good infrastructure to import LNG. For example, Spain was always, I mean, already pretty much relying on LNG before. Um, also, um, Netherlands, they have, you know, enough LNG terminals. Poland has one, Lithuania. So, I mean, some are well equipped to import LNG at this point. Except for Germany, the biggest gas consumer in Europe doesn't have an LNG terminal at this point. But there are some being built right now, so-called floating storage and regasification units. It's basically a, a big ship that operates like an LNG terminal. It's, it's then plugged into the pipeline system. And Germany's government has rented four of those. And two of them are supposed to be operational already by the end of this year. And this will you know, replace some of Russian's gas imports. So by next spring, or that's hopefully already in this winter, there will be enough import capacity to at least cover most of what's missing from Russia. But then there's another problem, which is that uh, the LNG market is not very big. So there's not that much supply there either. And usually it's already used by, you know, it's imported by other countries in long-term contracts. And the supply of LNG will only increase globally in 2024, 2025. So in, in two to three years, um, and until then, it, there will be a shortage. In, and this means very high prices for LNG, which is good news, for example, for the United States, which exports a lot of LNG. But it's bad news for importers um, in Asia, for example, um, which are now competing with the European Union for, you know, these few shipments which are out there um, and, and which are yeah just extremely expensive right now. So for the next two years, I mean, LNG is going to be the solution but it will come at a high price. The thing is that Norway and Algeria and um, Azerbaijan cannot ramp up their production that quickly. And this is why we won't have more, more pipeline gas essentially coming in the next years. It has to come uh, through LNG. And 
further down the line, I mean, 24, 25, we will have more gas from Qatar, for example, we will have more gas from the United States, we see some long term contracts between German companies and US companies right now on the deliveries of LNG, and also some other maybe Australian companies and so on. So I mean, there then then there will be new new supply, but at the moment, it's tight. Okay, thank you. So has the European Union used this gas crisis as an opportunity to take significant steps towards greater reliance on renewable energy? I think uh, that this will be one of the outcomes of this crisis, definitely. I mean, there are many reasons for this. Uh, a very simple one is that energy prices are extremely high right now, and this always incentivizes a more efficient use of energy. So we can expect that energy consumption will decrease, and once companies have figured out how to use less energy, they will not return to using more energy in the future. Also, it has become clear that renewable energy is one of the most, uh, the, the safest form of energy also in terms of foreign policy, because it doesn't create these kind of dependencies, at least once it's installed. Of course, you know, solar panels are also imported from somewhere. But uh, once it is installed, and if you have the kind of storage, because it's also a very intermittent energy source, then it, is, then it can be really reliable and it can actually improve the sovereignty, the energy security. So this has been realized and in many EU countries right now, there are new initiatives to really accelerate the buildup of, of renewable energies, um, especially in Germany, you know, where there are very ambitious plans. And, and I think, I mean, this always takes time because it is not, I mean, they, it cannot be installed overnight, but basically the... Other decisions have been taken and, and there will be a, a new push towards renewables it will definitely accelerate the buildup in the next years. So for our last question to wrap up, if Russia were to cut off or greatly decrease its gas supply to European countries further, when would it happen? When would be the optimal time for Russia to inflict the most damage? Uh, that's an excellent question. First of all, I mean, we have to consider that Russia already decrease its deliveries by two thirds. So it's only exporting about 30% of what it exported to the EU uh, a year ago. Um, this is not only due to Nord Stream 1, it has also stopped exporting through the Yamal pipeline through Poland, and it's exporting very little to Ukraine right now. So overall, we already have a two thirds embargo and, um, and what is left is only one third. And the question now is, when would it make sense for Russia to cut off this remaining one third? I think that there's a real risk that it's going to happen, um, basically for two reasons. The first one is that Russia itself is heading towards a, a you know, deep economic crisis. And for the Russian regime, it, they need something to point to. They need to have something for the propaganda to work with. And if they can say that, okay, see, the EU also has a deep crisis and it's also caused by their sanctions, then their own crisis won't look as won't look as bad. So, I mean, this is one of the reasons that Russia simply needs the EU to have also have a crisis and not be the only country which is suffering from these sanctions. The other reason is that I think the tensions between Russia and the EU will rather, or Russia and the West will rather increase because, because I don't see any way that this war is going to end and, and Ukraine is much you know, more and more reliant on Western financing and arms deliveries. So there is no, re no reason to assume that the confrontation between the West and Russia is going to, you know, get less. I think it would, will even get more uh, as Russia be maybe begins to struggle um, to hold its territory that it occupies in Russia, in, in Ukraine. And for these reasons, I think that it would be surprising if Russia would not use this tool to create pressure this winter. 
And this is the, the question is basically on also on, on how, how Western politicians and regulators are treating the problem. If there's complacency, then Russia will be able to inflict more damage. If there is a sense of urgency, then it will be harder for Russia to inflict damage. So Russia has maybe an incentive to, for now, keep some of the gas flowing. And then at some point when nobody really expects it anymore to cut it off. It's also, you know, we also need to consider that right now we are basically filling up our gas storages. And this is what all of the focus is on right now. But these gas storages, even if they're completely full, would with the current consumption of gas uh, not be enough to safely bring us through the winter and depending also on the weather if the winter is cold it's a bigger problem if the winter if the winter is warm then it's a smaller problem but um, we will have if, if, if you know if Russia cuts off deliveries we will have to change consumption and it takes time to you know find out which company should reduce consumption where it, you know doesn't affect too many jobs which private consumers can maybe reduce their consumption a bit more. And we have to prepare this. For this, we need a certain sense of urgency right now. And, you know, if, as Russia is continuing to deliver right now, you know, like right now it's very warm in Berlin and, and maybe there's sort of the feeling that it, it's going to be all right. But, you know, I, I think I expect it will not be all right in the winter. And so I think that the most important response right now is the sense of urgency we have to prepare ourselves for this cutoff so that it doesn't surprise us later on. Okay, thank you. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very thank much you. for having me.